My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. You know, last week we started a new sermon series on the book of Proverbs, and uh, we're probably going to spend a couple months looking at the Proverbs and various passages from this book. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Proverbs, uh, it's essentially about wisdom. And wisdom is important if you want to basically navigate life successfully. You need more than just technical skills. You need more than how-to books. You need more than this is the way to do things. But uh, what we really need is wisdom. And wisdom, I think, is a little bit more artsy than sciency, uh, in the sense that it requires a certain level of creativity. And I think that's why it also takes time to develop wisdom in our lives. Now, I'm going to assume that this is probably true of many of your industries, but uh, I'll speak personally from uh, what I do in terms of pastoral ministry. You know, most people that come out of seminary, uh, they have, you know, you learn a lot of technical skills. You learn how to exegete a passage and interpret it. You learn how to translate the text from the original languages and understand commentaries, and you know a lot of theology. But, you know, when you come out of seminary, uh, typically, uh, you're not a great preacher and you're not a great counselor. And I think the reason for that is because you have the skills, but you don't have wisdom yet. It takes time to really develop wisdom. And of course, technical skill is important, but it's not really enough to serve people well. Now, eventually, we are going to get to some of the practical matters that the book of Proverbs talks about. Things like how to good communication, things like work, uh, things like family. Uh, but we're going to take a little bit of time before we get there because I, wanna g- I want you to understand that Proverbs is not a how-to manual. The goal of Proverbs is not simply to just give us advice or information that we kind of take in and we say, okay, we should do this. But the goal of Proverbs is much larger in scope because Proverbs doesn't simply want to inform us, but it wants to transform us. It doesn't simply want to give us information. It wants, us, it wants to turn us into wise people. And, you know, the fact that Proverbs, I think, is in the Bible also tells us something else, that it's not enough to simply know what's right and what's wrong, that the law is not enough. It's not enough to even just be a morally right person. You actually need wisdom. You see, you can understand what the Bible says in terms of the Bible says you have to love your neighbor. But you need wisdom to know what that means, how to do it. Let me give you an example. You know, from time to time, I do get to talk to people who have a lot of experience helping the poor, uh, whether it's in the city or whether it's all across the world. And uh, these people who have worked in uh, trying to help the poor, uh, they really understand the complexities of the issue of poverty. They really understand the complexities of how difficult it can be to actually help the poor because there's personal things uh, involved, there's social dynamics, there's societal dynamics associated and all intertwined. 
You see, someone without wisdom might say, well, the way we help the poor is we have to simply throw more money at the problem, right? And that's what people have done in the past. But people who have worked in this area, they have wisdom in terms of how to best serve the poor and serve those in poverty. And they know that the biggest issue is not a lack of money. That if you just simply throw money at the problem and give people money, that sometimes it leads to actually greater harm for these people. You know, Western nations, I think, tried to alleviate poverty in places like Africa and certain countries in Africa. And what they did is they said, well, let's send a lot of money. Let's send aid. And in retrospect, people said that actually ended up hurting uh, certain countries in Africa because it made them more dependent and less uh, self-sufficient. And that ultimately had a debilitating impact on trying to get people out of poverty. So you see, life is more complex than perhaps we make it out to be. It's not enough to simply know what's right and what's wrong. But in order to love somebody well, you actually need wisdom. Wisdom is a familiar word, whether or not you're a Christian. Uh, Proverbs, I think, is a very quotable book. And it's not only Christians who can profit from it or who do profit from it. You know, someone who is not a, uh, a Christian may actually read some of the Proverbs and see a lot of the wisdom in it, and it might even resonate with their lives and their hearts because there's actually a lot of overlap in the wisdom of Proverbs and some of the wisdom that we see in the world. For example, Ben Franklin uh, is known for saying this. He would say, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's something similar to Proverbs says. You know, Proverbs 10.4 says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And you see, there's overlapping wisdom there, basically saying, you know, you need to be diligent, you need to work hard. And uh, this is going to sound like one of those late-night comedy bits, I know, but you know, I bet if I were to read you some of the, uh, the things that sound wise, it would probably be hard to discern whether this is something that comes from the Bible, from the book of Proverbs, or something that doesn't come from the book of Proverbs. Let me give you a test. For example, is this a proverb? Somebody said no. <laughs> now I'm going to read a proverb. No. Wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something. Sounds very wise. Uh, it's actually not from the Proverbs. I think it comes from Plato, but it could easily be a proverb. It sounds very proverb-ish. And, you know, since uh, a lot of wisdom in the Bible overlaps with general wisdom outside of the Bible, here's what uh, we might mistakenly conclude. We might say this, that uh, faith has a minimal role in terms of becoming wise. But you see, that's not what the book of Proverbs teaches. Faith actually has a very important role in terms of becoming wise people because something Proverbs 2, 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, knowledge, and understanding. Wisdom doesn't just come from life experience. Wisdom doesn't come from age. But wisdom, the source of wisdom, ultimately comes from the Lord. And therefore, because it comes from God himself, faith has this very important and I would even say central role to play in order to become wise people. Now, in today's passage, uh, it actually says a lot about faith, but you don't see the word faith in the passage, but the idea is there, I think. And uh, where do we see it? In verse 5, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, what is faith? Faith is essentially trust. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It doesn't mean that you simply believe that he existed, that he was an actual person, but to believe in Jesus means that you trust him enough that you would follow him that you would rely upon him, that you would depend upon him for life and salvation. And uh, you see there's this built-in illustration even here 
uh, in verse 5 when it says, Do not lean on your own understanding. Now, if I asked everybody here to stand up, and if I were to say, I want you to lean on the person that is next to you, uh, would you lean on that person in such a way that you would like really lean on them and put your entire body weight on them so much so that if they moved, that bam, you would hit the ground? I am going to guess most of you probably would not do that, right? Because uh, there's probably an issue of trust. There's an issue of, well, is this person really going to support my entire body weight? Can this person support my entire body weight? Is this person going to think it's funny if they just move and I fall to the ground, right? These kind of things might come up in our minds, and therefore we might not put our entire body weight on that person. But you know what we will do? Because uh, I said this is an exercise and uh, you're going to go through the motions, you're going to put your hand on the person, and you're going to pretend you're doing it without actually doing it. And I think that's an illustration of maybe how many of us are in terms of how we trust the Lord. That we want to uh, look good externally, we want to act like we are really trusting the Lord, and so we kind of put our hand on the Lord. But in reality, we are standing on our own two feet and leaning on ourselves. You see, what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart means that you are not leaning on your own strength, that you are not dependent upon your own strength, but what it means is that you are completely depending on the Lord. You are not self-sufficient. You are not trusting in yourself. You are not trusting in your own wisdom and your own standards and your own opinions, but you are trusting entirely on the Lord. You see, without trust, just without trust in general, things tend to fall apart. Relationships, all relationships require a certain degree of trust in order to flourish. Even the non-personal kind of relationships require a certain level of trust in order to work. You have to trust your employer is going to pay you when for the work that you've done in order to continue to work for them, right? There's trust there. And there's a book that came out a couple years ago by, uh, uh, I always get these two people confused, Andrew Sorkin, I think. Not the screenwriter, the guy who uh, uh, works for the New York Times for DealBook. Uh, he wrote a book called Too Big to Fail, and uh, HBO even made a movie about it. And I remember, you know, when I was reading that book and then later on when I saw the movie, the one thing that struck me is, you know what the government's priority was during that time, during the financial crisis? Their priority was to restore trust in the markets because without trust, everything collapsed. You see, trust is like one of those things, it's so intangible and it's so immaterial, yet it is so central to so many things in our lives, to all of our relationships, and even so central to the working of the economy, which is central to the working of society. And uh, one of the most important things, similarly speaking, in terms of Christianity, is trust, is to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. Now, I want to draw your attention to something. You know, in verses 5 and 6, there's a small word that could easily go unnoticed, uh, but it actually makes a big difference in terms of how we receive and understand this text and how we are to relate to God. And that word is the word all. Verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. Now, if I were to reread those verses and just remove that little word, this is what I would say. Trust in the Lord with your heart. In your ways, acknowledge him. And I don't think it would quite be saying the same thing because that little word tells us that partial trust is not enough. Partial acknowledgement actually is not enough. Wisdom won't come when we partially trust the Lord and when we only acknowledge him some of the time. Wisdom comes when you are all in with respect to whom you trust and whom you acknowledge. 
Now, I've said this many times before, but it's always worth saying in the Bible, the heart is not referring to our feelings, to our emotions. Uh, when we see the word heart in the Bible, uh, it's referring to the centrality of who we are. It's referring to uh, the core of a person. It's referring to the very desires that we have in our heart. Uh, in our culture, when we use the word heart, uh, we oftentimes think of it as a sentiment. When we say something that is heartfelt, usually what that means is that it's genuine and it's authentic because we think that if we feel it, that's what makes it true and that's what makes it authentic. But the Bible doesn't see the heart as the seat of the emotion. It sees it as the seat of our desire. And desire is ultimately what shapes us to be who we are. Or to put it in another way in the language of the Bible, we are creatures of worship. And worship will always reflect what we ultimately desire. Uh, when I was younger, you know, I had to memorize, uh, you know, different Bible verses. And there was a proverb that I had to memorize. And it said this, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, I memorized it in the NIV translation because uh, actually all my memory verses are probably in the NIV translation back in the day. I remember struggling to understand what does that mean? Guard your heart, right? Above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. And because I thought the heart was uh, relating to emotion, the way I understood it and interpreted it is uh, guard your heart from being too emotional, right? Don't, don't be too emotional. Maybe that's why I am the way that I am, right? Because uh, that's how I understood it. But no, it's actually saying this. Guard your heart from desiring and over-desiring things other than the Lord because your life will be shaped by what you desire. Uh, this is an idea that comes from St. Augustine, famous theologian uh, from way, way, way back in the day. And uh, he's known for this idea of disordered loves. And he would say, something to the effect of you are or you become what you love. You become what you love. You don't become what you think. You don't become what you feel. You ultimately become what you love. So for example, if you love your career, then what do you think? What are your thoughts filled with? It's filled with thoughts about how to get ahead in your career. Your emotions are going to reflect what you desire because you're going to feel happy when your career is going well and you're going to feel sad or miserable when your career is not going well. You become what you love because essentially what happens is as that desire for that thing, that object continues to grow, your identity begins to get shaped by it. Your sense of who you are, your sense of worth begins to be shaped by your desire. That means, right, if your career becomes who you are, when your career is going well, everything's fine. But when your career is not going well, and maybe when you even lose your career, what happens? You lose your self, sense of self. You lose your sense of value. And with all that, leads to all kinds of issues. That leads to things like depression and anxiety and a sense of feeling lost, a feeling of uh, I don't belong anywhere because I don't know who I am. There's no peace. There's no security. There is no refreshment. You know, this passage is framed as a lecture from a father to the son. And ultimately, what does a father want of this son? You look at the first two verses, he says this, Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. This father wants length of days and years of life and peace to be added to his son. And how does he envision that happening? By letting his heart keep his commandments. 
Now, the commandments that he's talking about is not like household rules. It's not the commandments of the Father. It's not saying like, you know, if you want these things, you need to be home by a certain time, son, and you need to mow the lawn, right? It's not those kind of commandments. But the Hebrew word is actually the word Torah. And in the context of the, uh, of the book of Proverbs, it's ultimately about God's commandments. It's about the book of law, the law of life, the law that God has given. And so what he is saying is this, if you want to live long and prosper with peace, then you have to live according to God's word. And you have to trust God with respect to your understanding. Now, <clears throat> I said this before, there's an, a lot of overlap with the wisdom in Proverbs and the wisdom in our culture. But I should also point out, uh, there's a lot of conflict too. And we see it in this passage. You know, in verse 7 it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Western culture is a very individualistic culture and therefore the wisdom of our culture says that everybody is wise in their own eyes, that every individual uh, should have the right to know what to do uh, with every aspect of their lives because at the end of the day, you know best. The individual knows best. And you know, I hear so much of that everywhere <laughs> in a lot of my interactions. Uh, you know, when it comes to romantic relationship, people always say, I know what kind of husband, or I know what kind of wife I need. When it comes to work, people say, I know the path I need to follow and what, was, what is ultimately going to make me feel happy in life. Even when it comes to faith, uh, I hear people say all the time, I know what kind of church community I need. I've even heard somebody say this a, a long time ago in the past. You know, I'm going to take a break from church and uh, I know this is what I need in my life right now. And every time I hear somebody say, I know what I need, my, my initial thought is, how can you be so confident? How are you so confident that you ultimately know what you need? Do you know your future? Do you know what uh, this decision is going to lead to? With all the factors, with all the complexity of life, how do you know ultimately what is good for you and what you need? That is probably a very uh, proud way of understanding the self. And it fits directly within the modern narrative, this individualistic approach to wisdom, that you are wise in your own eyes. Now, I want to point something out in the structure. You know, there's this kind of back and forth that's going on in this passage between advice and promise. So, for example, advice, he says this, let your heart keep my commandments, promise, length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Advice, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, promise, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So you see that structure going back and forth. Advice, promise. Look in verse 6. The advice is this. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What is the promise? He will make straight your paths. Advice. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Promise. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you know what this is saying? It's saying this. If you live in a way where you are wise in your own eyes, where you simply just look at things from your own perspective, that you don't take into account other perspectives, where you have this utmost confidence that you ultimately know what is right for yourself and what is good for yourself, do you know what it's actually saying is this. You will not experience the kind of healing and refreshment that we all long for. In fact, there's a good chance and a good possibility you might experience sickness and you might experience a heavy burden in your life. 
I think I can almost show this uh, through some data <laughs> because uh, I don't know if you keep up with these things, but <coughs> depression is on the rise, <laughs> anxiety is on the rise, uh, even though we're much more materially wealthier than past generations, people are much unhappier than previous generations. Now, l let me ask you this. If you feel like that today, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider whether you are ultimately leaning on your own understanding and whether you think you are wise in your own eyes. I want you to think about that. And I want you to think that perhaps the possibility, the reason why it could be that you are feeling that way is because you are living in such a way. Now, by the way, the Bible, that's, that's what the Bible would actually define as a fool. And it's not meant to be uh, an insult as if you lack intelligence. But somebody who is living foolishly is someone who ultimately lives uh, according to what is right in their own eyes. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. If you're leaning on yourself, and you know, even if you claim to be a Christian and you're doing that thing where you're just putting your hand on and putting on external appearances, but at the end, your deepest and ultimate trust is upon yourself then perhaps, perhaps that is a reason why so much anxiety and unhappiness and depression is filling many of our hearts. You see, in this biblical narrative, <coughs> what the Bible says is the self is actually the very thing that we need freedom from. Martin Luther famously would always say the sinful human heart is curved in upon itself. We are al always being drawn inward when what we really need is to be drawn upward. Sin makes us fools. And what we need is someone to save us from our folly so that we can embody wisdom. Now, how does that happen? How would God do that? God does that by giving us Jesus. You see, in verse 3, <clears throat> there's a few phrases here that are supposed to make us think about something very specific. And what it's supposed to make us think about is this concept of covenant. Covenant. For example, uh, the word translated steadfast love is actually the Hebrew word hesed. And if you were here for the series on the book of Ruth, you know that hesed is a very difficult word to translate. Hesed means much more than simply love, but built into this concept of hesed usually is this idea of covenant faithfulness. You also see the word bind. You also see words like tablet. These are words that are meant to point to this idea of covenant. Now you see, what God does is he establishes a covenant. He establishes uh, basically uh, an agreement between he and his people. And that is the way that uh, we essentially are able to relate to a holy God and this establishment of a covenant, what it basically means is that both parties, both God and his people, are supposed to faithfully fulfill the terms that are laid out in the covenant. And the problem with that is that his people over and over and over again fail to meet those terms. You see, I pointed out the structure before, and you, you have certain promises that accompany certain proverbs. And I think if we were really self-reflective about some of these things, we should probably conclude this, that we have an followed wisdom's advice, that we haven't been wise. Our hearts haven't kept God's commandments. We haven't trusted in the Lord with all of our heart, and we haven't acknowledged him. We probably tend to lean our own understanding. We probably tend towards doing that which is wise in our own eyes, and yet 
we look at the promises and we can conclude this, that God has given us these things. Now, how do we reconcile that? How does that happen? How does God give us length of days and years? How does God give us peace? How does God give us favor? How does God give us healing and refreshment? How does that happen? It happens like this. Jesus, he came into this world on our behalf to fulfill the terms of this covenant for us. You know, last week we said that Jesus himself is the very personification of wisdom. He embodies the very wisdom of God, right? That means that he lived the wisdom of this passage because he is the wisdom of this passage. You know, if anybody deserved to be uh, very confident in himself, uh, very individualistic, if anybody should be allowed to presume that he knew what was right and best for himself, you would think it would be Jesus, right? The second person of the triune God. But even here, you see, Jesus trusted the will of his Father. When, on the night before his crucifixion, he would pray and he would say, Father, take this cup away from me. He's referring to the cup of wrath, saying, if Take this cup away from me. But you can see that he trusts his father because before that he says this, if it's your will, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Even in that, you see that Jesus is essentially all in in terms of his trust for his father. That even though the father's will was for him to die this horrific death upon a cross, to receive the very judgment and the wrath of God for all of our sin. Jesus trusts God that this is the way. This is the way salvation would come into the world. And he submits to that. You know, if you think about this uh, idea of just suffering, pain, hardship, from our eyes, it never looks like the best option to us, right? You know, we couldn't get to the last two verses where it talks about the Lord's discipline. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we can say is, you know, discipline, pain, hardship, adversity. Uh, it's not always pleasant. Uh, it's not always for reasons of retribution. Sometimes pain and hardship can be caused out of love. Anybody who's a parent here, if you discipline your child, when you discipline them, they probably cry, they probably hate it. But hopefully, as a parent, you do it out of love because you want to raise them up in a certain way. And make them uh, whole human beings. Here it talks about the discipline of, of a father to a son, and it talks about how it comes because the father loves the son. You see, all pain, all hardship, uh, it's not this simplistic linear equation where you do bad things, hardship comes, right? That's living too simplistically. Life is much more complex than that. Suffering comes to us because of many more, a complexity of other factors, And we see that God uses pain, death, suffering, not upon us, but upon his own son, upon Jesus Christ, in order to bring life and salvation to the world. You know, if there's anybody who was all in, it had to be Jesus. He's all in in terms of his obedience. He is all in in terms of his trust in the Father. He is all in with respect to giving up his heavenly wealth. And we know he was all in 
because the wisdom of the cross tells us that. Now, there's freedom. There is liberty from both sin and folly for you and I. There's a possibility of wisdom because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can be wise people because we have been given wisdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so may God give us the faith to trust him with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. May God give us ultimately the wisdom to know that we are not wise in our own eyes so that we might experience these great promises of healing and refreshment in our bones. And that is something we have access to because he gives it to us richly in Christ. Let's pray together.